So in case you missed it, I wrote a book, <laughs> like a full-blown cover-to-back book, Confessions of a Crappy Christian. The book is real-life talk about the things Christians aren't sure they're supposed to say. It's like the podcast and my Instagram times a thousand. Inside, I dive into things like mental health, being a fiery woman from within the church, friendship breakups, and more from the perspective of my life and how God has moved. So you can find out more and pre-order if you would like at crappychristianco.com slash book. Pre-orders matter a lot in the book world, and we have some awesome incentives coming your way, so that would really mean the world. Welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Crabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident crappy Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks. Like, I'm happy to be here. You have a story and a book that I think a lot of people are going to resonate with that don't want to resonate with it. For Like when we first got on this call, I was like, oh, this one's hard, <laughs> but Messy. yeah, it is, but it's, it's so necessary and we need solid believers and women, I think, especially speaking into this conversation. So your book is You Are Wanted, Reclaiming the Truth of Who You Are, and it is for the woman living in the aftermath of being unchosen, like of being betrayed. In your situation, it's in a marriage. There are a lot of opportunities for betrayal in every kind of relationship, unfortunately. But tell us just a little bit about yourself and your story so that people kind of have some backstory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I live in Ontario, Canada. And for those of you who don't know where that is just North of Michigan. And, and this is where I was kind of born and raised, but I spent many years on the West coast of Canada and I have a a counseling practice here in Ontario. I had a counseling practice in, in the West coast and life was good. I was married to someone for almost 20 years and the story that you are wanted reclaiming the truth of who you are book was born out of the ending of that 20 year long relationship. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, I was completely blindsided. So we don't see what we're not looking for. Right. And so, you know, you kind of go around, you go through your life and you're into a routine with your, with your family and your partner. And, and then the unthinkable happens. Mm-hmm. And and if I can be really honest, there were little red flags, right? Because when we, just what you said is exactly right. The betrayal happens, being unchosen happens sometimes in little yellow flags or red flags throughout the relationship. Yeah. In my relationship, it was, there were situations with pornography. And let me tell you, that's betrayal. Mm-hmm. And that's hard on our egos as wives. It's hard on our souls as wives. And, and just as an aside, anybody who says that pornography is not a problem in Christian men is, uh, out to lunch. I'm like, that's a whole different podcast, but I'm like (laughs) almost jealous that you can like be that 
checked out. Yeah. From the right. reality. No of kidding. It. Like, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to say it. Yeah, for sure. So we have these little rejections along the way, but we just, we don't have eyes on the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so and it is the, unthinkable it is unthinkable. It is unthinkable. And then when you find out some of the details of what happens on behind the scenes and, uh, and so for me, what ended up happening at, at about the 17 year mark, there was a pulling away. I felt that there was a distancing in the relationship. And I, I scrambled because I felt like I had, I had a solid connection with this person, but I, I knew that there was something happening, but of course there's denial and you ask the questions and you have strong communication and I'm over on my professional side. I'm a, I'm a counselor, right? Like <laughs> I do I, this for a living. I do this for a living. And yet I was so Ill, like, just, I was not prepared for this at all. And so it kind of unfolded and unraveling uh, happened. And then over a period of time, I, I think I hustled. I found myself hustling. And what ends up happening is we lose ourselves in the hustle. Mm. We're so convinced that there's something going on. And we just, we're willing to just bend over backwards to do what we need to do in order to win the, the love or the affection of our partner back, right? And you lose yourself in that. And so very, I often say it's like a, it's not a shark attack. It's a piranha attack. It's bit by bit, bit by bit, little, little, little. That's how you kind of kill your prey as a piranha, right? And, uh, and so piece by piece, I felt myself kind of falling into this position of almost panic stricken a lot of the time mm-hmm. and feeling very unloved, very unwanted and very unchosen. And part of the work that I would do is I would, you know, just kind of leave notes all over the place. And I'd always done that in the relationship, but this in particular was like, you are loved. Don't forget. Don't forget mm. that you are loved. And the hustle, the hustle, the hustle. And in that, I lost sight of my own lovableness because I was so caught up in trying to connect and, and find something that was already already gone. Mm. And, uh, and of course, when you find out later that behind the scenes, there's been a life kind of established that I, I couldn't have competed with anyways, but mm. I was, or at least I did not compete with. But right. uh, yeah, so and ultimately the relationship ended and couple of years later, I moved from the West Coast on back to Ontario. The good news part of the story is I need you to know that I, I am remarried to my high school sweetheart. It's all beautiful again, I can't. but that Valley was really, really painful, which is, which is where that book came from. Yeah. I need to know how you reconnected with your high school sweetheart. Okay. got to know this part. Yeah. I, yeah. Give okay. us the glimmer. Like, <laughs> okay. Okay. So I fell in, his name is Brent and I, I fell in love with Brent when I was 14 years old. And and I'll tell you what, I have a whole binder full of poems I've written to him. I practice my signature. Oh yeah, this is like the real deal is all love. Who says you can't fall in love at 14? Of course you can. I agree. Yeah. So I, I loved this man very much. 14, 15, 16, I finally got to date him. Uh, we dated for a few months and then he broke up with me. And, and so really, he's probably my first major rejection if I think about it. But <laughs> You're like, oh. I, I know, I know. So uh, anyways, this was, and I moved to, you know, across the country and we were both involved in our own relationships. Very sadly, Brent's wife passed away several years ago in and around the same time that things were falling apart in my marriage. The really neat thing about all of this is that our families were close all the way through. We were church-related family. We would used to do Christmas Eves together and stuff as Aww. kids. And so our families are very, very close. And, and I've always loved his parents as you know, additional parents and him vice versa and whatnot. So when I moved back to Ontario, uh, this friendship had kind of started up. We were just, it was just the right thing at the right time. And so I was able to actually literally use my childhood signature that I practiced in my bedroom. Every I know it's just, it's a Hallmark movie. Are you kidding me? I Except know. Better. Cause it's real. Oh, I love that. I like, that was just for me. 
I just needed to hear that story. It's a good story. It's a good story. Those are my favorite. I have two friends who are married to their high school sweethearts and like have been together since one of them. He asked her to be his girlfriend at my 16th birthday party. Oh no. And they're like four kids later. That's fantastic. I do love those those stories because I love those stories because I fell in love at 18 and spent four years of my life loving him and put aside most of my dreams for my life. And then he cheated on me (laughs) and went on to, and like 100% like Garth Brooks, unanswered prayer. I'm so thankful that I ended up where I ended up and with who I ended up with. But what's so interesting about it, my husband and I celebrate 10 years of marriage this year. We've been together for 11. I'm still unpacking some of that betrayal and my like knee jerk reactions to things from something that was 11 years ago that only lasted four years. I think we underestimate what stuff like that does to us. Yeah. You know what? I'm so glad you said that. Uh, We are made for connection and belonging. We're built for it. God's built it into us. And uh, when, when the unthinkable thing happens, when we've been betrayed or unchosen or rejected, it smashes up against our core need. And so it, it just causes us to really wrestle with our worth. And so, and if, and if in that time, when it happens, we don't do really good therapeutic work on ourselves for whatever reason, because I think that it's minimized, right? Like when you lose a partner in the way that you've lost your partner in the way that I lost mine, it was like this, the sense of that your young person, there's this sense of it's not death. So it's not that, but I should just be okay. I should just be it able to work through so it. It is so minimized. Yeah. It's minimized. Yeah. But do you feel like it was minimized for you? Yeah. After y'all been together for 20 years? Yeah. People get uncomfortable with our discomfort, right? People True. get uncomfortable in our pain. And so they want to, when there isn't a death, they, there's a sense of, well, you're better off without them. No one would ever say yes. that if your person passed away, right? Right. Well, if he did that to you, then, you know, you're better off to, no. I mean, yes, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's true. There's like this like hurrying thing we do, isn't it? Like we just, yeah. Yeah. And so people want us to be okay. So mm-hmm. seriously, within a few weeks, people are like, you just need to get on a dating site. And get yourself, I write about this in my book, actually. I write about my experience on my dating site. It was like a 40-hour, 24-hour, 40-hour experiment. But, you know, short-term admiration from strangers doesn't fix a soul wound, right? When you're rejected or betrayed, that's a soul wound. We have to do really good work with it. It can't just be hurried along. And we we spend a lot of time trying to run away from it, but it just catches us. It's just going to catch us. Oh yeah. Cause I did not do the work. I didn't okay, yeah. right after. I mean, I was in therapy, but I think I assimilated that I'm better off. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Bye. I'm going to thrive. Right. And then a few years into my marriage, my husband is literally saying to me, you're making me pay a price for something that someone else did. Oh uh, yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Oh yeah. He is. He's very self-aware. He's on it. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. But it was just this like, oh, I am. And that to me is the worst. That's the worst part of betrayal. Mm. Whether it's marital betrayal, friendship betrayal, work betrayal. If you don't heal, you make someone else pay a price for something they didn't do. You are so right. And, and what it does is it kind of drags that pain into the new relationship. And, and it's, hard to, it's hard to kind of function healthfully in the relationship when you're dragging the leftover bits and pieces from 
you know, your trauma. Yeah, exactly. That's such an interesting dynamic for you, right? You're a therapist Mm -hmm. and then you you're going through something that people are coming into your office with. Oh yeah. What did that look like? Okay. Well, (laughs) it looked like panic attacks between clients. Yeah. If I'm really, really honest. Yeah. Um, you know, because you come into that place where you're like, okay, so how does this look now? I had left a government job to go into private practice because there were two of us and there was the pension and there was the benefits and all things. So I had, I'd left the government job to go into private practice. I needed to work. Yeah. I didn't have the benefit of sick days. I don't like, you know, if I don't work. I don't get paid type of a thing. And in so many ways, what we're trained up to do is compartmentalize. So I think, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. So I think I'm pretty good at, at putting aside my own personal stuff to sit with a client. And I, I look back on some of those days and I, I really have like blotches of time where I don't remember, mm-hmm. but I've also been, as I've kind of been transparent about what's happened, I've also had clients reach out to me and say, I would never have known you did excellent work with me. So I'm so grateful for that, but I'll tell you. That's Holy spirit. <laughs> it is the Holy spirit. Yes, that is so true because the client would leave and I would literally stand in my office or I'd go to the bathroom and I would have a panic attack. And uh-huh. so the way that I managed, I have these, you know, I'd come up with scripture that I would get myself through the, through the panic attack attack. And it would just sound, it would be like, I trust you, Jesus. I'm safe in the shadow of your wing. You go before me, you stand behind me. I trust you, Jesus. Like I would just recite that over and over and over again yeah. in the bathroom in the produce section and the wherever, <laughs> because of these, these flare ups, right. My office was across the street. My windows out of my office looked at the church that I was married in. And so I had to locate myself differently in my office with my back to the wind. Like I was just very aware that the heaviness of this, of the season of my life would impact my work if I really didn't take good care. So I made sure that I exercised more. I made sure that I was getting the sleep and nutrition I needed. I made sure that I went to counseling. Mm -hmm. I got a massage regularly, self-care all the way through, right? I was in the word constantly and really just having to be continually turning it over. I started a practice at that time with my clients that I've continued on is that every morning because anxiety likes to steal the little quiet times, right? So anxiety mm-hmm. likes to creep in and just steal that from us. I just started praying for the people I was going to see in the day. Mm. Uh, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I hadn't thought to do that prior to this, but now that's what I do in the morning. And I know yeah. that I'm seeing, you know, you know, these eight people today, I'm praying for them on my way to work and, um, or when I get to my desk. So it just fills the space with prayer instead of the anxiety that wants to creep in. Can I just say that the fact that you had to relocate your office because seeing the church triggered you makes me feel better in a weird way. Like you're a therapist, you have all Mm -hmm. the tools and that Mm -hmm. was still hard and Mm -hmm. triggering because sometimes it does not matter how many tools you have. It does not matter how much, you know, that stuff just stings and it sucks. And like, there are things that you can do to avoid it. And I think that that's really healthy and important. But sometimes I think like kind of almost going back to the response of you're better off, get over it. Mm. That bleeds into like our responses, you know? And so if you are triggered by a song or a location or a situation, people are like, come on, it's a church. Right. Right. No, this is my very human experience. Yes. I'm I'm always like, let me have this. Just, I don't need (laughs) you to fix it. Right. Just, just let me, yeah. just let me be like, yeah. just let me be. And I think, I do think that most of the time it really does come from a place of love 
Like, Mm -hmm. yes, people are uncomfortable with our discomfort. I've had Mm -hmm. an anxiety disorder since I was seven. Mm -hmm. I've made a lot of people uncomfortable in my life. (laughs) You know all about it. Yeah. But at the same time, I know that the people who love me the most fiercely would love nothing more than for me to never have another panic attack in my life. Yes, that's so true. Yeah. I do know that sometimes it's like, I don't need you to fix it but I understand why you want to. Mm-hmm. I would want to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know so what I mean? Gracious. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I just think that, cause I see so much of myself in like so much of what you're sharing, even though mine was college relationship years ago, seemingly inconsequential. Yeah. I talk often with clients about how, you know, Jacob wrestled and he spent his life with a limp. And I think we have a limp, right? Yes. Like I, I, we all have limp this is my limp. And yeah. I'm going to argue that you probably would say something similar. And yeah. I think we have, but here's the thing, what we know to be true also, and I think just like Jacob is that it's also a reminder of what God's brought us through. Amen. And sometimes the limp does get better. It does. It gets thing. way better. Yo, like, yeah. So I, on the other, like, I like to, a lot of time in these conversations, try to like broaden it for people a little bit. I've been really open about going through three really brutal friendship betrayals Mm. in the last three years. When I tell you that I walked with a limp, I crawled for a while. Yeah. And I will never forget. And and I actually wanted to ask you about this because it's something that you talk in the book about being on this beach in Mexico and like feeling a shift in your pain. I can remember like the day that I was like, I'm limping less. Mm. I'm limping and I may always limp, but I'm a little bit less. Uh, That's only God. That's only God. Only God. So tell us this Mexico beach story. Yeah. So it it had been a few months since uh, my husband had declared the relationship was done. And my daughter and I had moved into a little apartment in a different community and we just needed a girl's getaway. I cannot, I cannot say how important self-care is and, and finding a different location to just, even if it's just going away for a weekend, if you can, to get Mm -hmm. sometimes away and change, change your environment, change your perspective a little bit. So off we go to Mexico, always a good idea. And I am in the habit of doing devotions every morning. So I got up in the morning as usual and went down to the beach with my Bible. And as an aside, you know, sitting on the beach with your Bible is a lot of extra work because it's just windy down there. And there's, there's just a lot of things like, I am committed. (laughs) I'm doing it. That's right. I'm doing it. So I'm reading my Bible and the sun, I could feel the sun was kind of starting to rise on my left. And I look up and there was this unbelievable sunrise on the left and it had all the colors, the pinks, the oranges. And I was blown away just by the beauty of it. And as I'm watching it, I felt this just nudge from the Holy Spirit to look to my right. And I look down the beach on the right and there is a storm pounding the shores down the beach. So the, you can see the lightning. It is dark, dark, dark for those, for those people down the beach. I look to my left, the sunrise is still going on. And in an instant, I understood the message. The message mm. is beauty and pain can coexist. Really beautiful things can happen at the same time that really terrible things are happening. Yes. And, but where we put our focus, that's what's going to be the main kind of lens that we view the world through. So if, I'm, if I've just got my eyes locked on the sunrise, then the storm over here is going to be, it's going to be less. But if I'm just looking at the storm, I'm going to miss the beauty of the sunrise. Mm-hmm. And so we really have to be intentional about where we put our focus was, did really bad things happen in my life? Seven months prior, had I, had I, had I been the victim of something? Yes. 
but I can't wave the flag of victim and the flag of victor at the same time. I have to choose, right? I have to choose. So waving the flag of victor means I just claim what Jesus promises, what, what God says is true of me, because let me tell you, the words that had said to me about me and the rejection message that was spinning in my head, the creator of everything says, I'm chosen, mm-hmm. I'm pursued, I'm loved, I'm adored, I'm woven together on purpose for a purpose. Like he says all those things for me. So if he says that about me, then it doesn't matter what any human says about me. Yeah, amen. And so I get to wave that victory flag because mm-hmm. that's where I can locate myself. So where I focus my attention, that's going to be the most obvious lens for me. If you have been trying to grow in the online space or in your small business, but you are tired of nothing working and feeling burnt out in the process, I want to tell you about my course, Run Your Race. Run Your Race is a guide to showing up on social media and expanding your reach without falling into the hustle trap. Inside of it, I teach you everything I know about time management, productivity, how to present yourself with things like branding and newsletters and content. We talk about fighting the lies that hold you back and all the things that I've learned about monetizing your online presence. Run Your Race only opens for enrollment a few times a year. So head to crappychristianco.com slash runyourrace to find out when it will open next and to get on the wait list. Well, and I love what you said about the victor, like, you can't wave the flag of victim and victor at the same time. Some people may hear that and be like, but I am the victim. Mm-hmm. But you were the victim. That's right. But you were safe in his presence. Like you didn't have to identify as a victim because you were trusting that God defends the defenseless. Mm-hmm. And like he fights for us when we can't fight for ourselves. So Like, I think we think victor and we think like battle, like warrior. And are we that sometimes hundred percent, but sometimes being a victor is like laying by still water Mm. and letting God refresh your soul and not feeling like you have to be the one to battle it out. So good. Yeah. And look, that's coming from someone who will (laughs) choose battle every day. (laughs) Like I'm being totally honest, but that has been the hugest area of growth. Like have people screwed me over in the last three years? hundred percent. Yeah. You're a victim of that. Right. Happens yeah. more often than really most people should go through it. Mm-hmm. But it's like that uh, Zoe Deschanel quote where it's like, mm-hmm. don't let the, like, don't let the world make you hard. Mm-hmm. There's power in staying soft. So good. Yeah. That you could have let this and all of us have the opportunity to let these massive betrayals make us hard or on the other side, identify as a victim or I sometimes think we can take like that victor thing and like make that our identity no like I'm a victor because he is that's right yeah that's right he's already won this is but a battle the war is finished it's just a different mindset and I love that like sunset storm I think most people have seen like some like that's the cool thing about the beach, right? You just watch this story and you're like, is it going to miss us? Is it going to miss us? And then it does, sometimes, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But another thing that's in your book that I thought was really interesting is this title of rejection researcher. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Who wants to research rejection? That sounds terrible. <laughs> it's so, you know, this is a, this is a nod to Brene Brown, isn't it? Because she just let us like, she's the, the shame yeah. researcher. And I think 
uh, shame and vulnerability research and and so she's made it okay to research some of the hard stuff yeah when I am grateful for her for leading the way in that and and my situation when my my husband said he was done it catapulted me into this valley of rejection Mm -hmm. and so I just say I face planted in the valley of rejection and I I spun around in my own kind of sorrow down there for for quite some time but what ended up happening in that valley is I find that the bottom of the valley is actually God's workbench. I mean, this is where he does some of his best stuff, right? And yes. so uh, and he came rushing in on me and I just found myself, I started to see myself through the eyes of my heavenly father instead of through the eyes of the man who walked away. Yeah. Through the eyes of the man who stayed versus the man who walked away. And so when I was able to make that shift, I really wanted to understand like, why does rejection hurt so much? Yeah so hard on us. Right. And so I had to, obviously, in order to understand rejection, I also had to learn how to uh, research, right. Belonging and acceptance and mm-hmm. love. And what does that actually mean? And so I just decided, I'm just going to put my researchers hat on because even from a therapeutic perspective, when we can distance ourselves from the problem a little bit, this is the narrative therapist in me, when I can distance myself from the problem and I can look at it almost like it's a train going by like, okay, that's interesting. What am I noticing about myself in this situation? Mm-hmm. When are my, you know, struggling, when are the times I struggle the most or what's happening for me in this moment? Or why did that trigger me? When you can start to kind of research yourself and I was researching rejection, I was researching what is it like to be unchosen? Mm. I really believe that everything that we go through has, uh, has purpose in somebody else's life too. And so I wanted to be able to sit with clients and not even necessarily share the details of my story, but sit in a place of compassion and empathy from knowing a little bit more about rejection because I've researched it. Plus I needed to know for the book. Right. So I, I needed to be able to speak to it a little bit, but for that perspective as well. But yeah, so that was the rejection researcher hat that yeah. I put on. That was a way to help myself through the valley a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and when we originally kind of started talking about shared experience, you know, when you were talking about that, the scramble that we do, like when the, that betrayal begins and you're trying to keep them around and you're trying to keep the love alive or you know, like what this, like how much this can wreck a person. The reality is, is that the conversation of rejection is uncomfortable because mm-hmm. we think that it speaks to our identity. I've been rejected because I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Yeah. I've done something wrong. There's someone better. And that's like really difficult to even want to like look at. Mm-hmm. And I know that this is a lot of what your book is about. And there, you know, each chapter has its own like rejection recovery, which I love. But can you give us like a little bit of like what you found in like researching your own rejection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is such an important kind of identification is that like we know, and there's been research that says that like rejection actually kind of piggybacks on the same pain receptors as physical pain. And so uh, it actually affects the brain physically. Makes so much sense. Right. It just, it's, and, but it has this longer lasting impact because uh, you know how women say when they give birth, they're like, oh, but it was, you know, the pain was worth it. Or I don't even remember the pain. I, I, for one, I remember the pain. I, I I can't speak for anybody else, but I, (gasps) the physical pain tends to dull, but Mm -hmm. we remember rejection longer because I go back to that place of we were created for connection. We, yeah. we were created with a desire to be in relationship. God made it that way, right? So right from the very beginning of time, he created man in his own image. And then he created a woman 
and a man in the garden because of connection, because of Mm -hmm. belonging to each other and to him, to be in relationship with him. So we're created for it. We have a space in our heart that says we need to be a connection. And we just look around us. We see all the people needing to be connected through social media and all the things that we do. But so for that reason, and that's why I call it a soul wound to rejection is a soul wound because I believe we were created for connection. Mm -hmm. And what I learned about rejection is that it does kind of spur on this scramble. Like you mentioned this hustles for acceptance, right? We, we just like, we look everywhere. Okay. Am I, am I rejectable? Am I replaceable? Am I really that bad? So, and that can lead us into all kinds of different directions, some Mm -hmm. good and some not so good. And like I said, I hopped on and off a dating site way too soon. And just to find some evidence that, oh, I was still wanted. Am I okay? Am I okay? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and so it can lead us into, you know, problem behaviors for sure. And what I found through the rejection piece was A, I had to sit in the discomfort of it. And B, I had to start identifying myself through the lens of um, the person who created me. And the mm-hmm. most important thing to hold, um, not, that's not, that's not true. That's not, the most important thing is to identify myself through his, through God's lens. But a really important piece was that rejection itself is actually not the thing that's problematic. The rejection brings a story that we start to believe. Ooh, is the thing, right? That one hurts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the rejection itself is, um, but the, what is the story it generates? hundred percent that you're not okay. That you're not mm-hmm. like, so you're talking that scurry. I had that situation with a friendship where I could tell a friendship was dying and I wanted to hold on to it really, really badly. Yeah, there it is. And yeah. so you're just like, Hey, do you need anything? Here's a present. (laughs) And I look back and I'm like, ick. Yeah. Feels gross in retrospect. That girl. Yeah. But I can remember just doing everything I could to keep this relationship, to keep this person loving me. When like retrospectively, it's very obvious that God was removing people from my life that did not need to take the mountain with me. But story I was hearing was I'm not a good friend. I'm not worth being friends with. That one deteriorated so badly. So I was like, like crying every time I was leaving their presence because they were just mean, (laughs) but Uh, you know, so then you start like, I am too much. I am too loud. I am too opinionated. So it was this very damaging story. And I wish that we were, this was on video because I just like collapsed. (laughs) I was like, Oh, you're right. It is. It's the story. Okay. So you, you are betrayed. You are unchosen. Mm -hmm. Let's say you don't have the tools out the gate to start like ending that story. So you do start telling yourself a story. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Mm-hmm. How do you get out of that? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question. A big, uh, we call this confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is, is that thing that we, we decide something is true based on something that's happened to us. And then we collect information to prove it's true. Yeah. We do it. We all do it on some level. And rejection is like prime real estate for that, right? So we get rejected. And then we start looking at all these other places we've been rejected. Actually, that happened to me as well. And that happened to me. And when I think about it, actually, maybe I am actually too much because there's evidence that I'm too much or not enough, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And so or we both. Collect, or both. Yeah, all of that. We collect material and we just let ourselves focus on evidence to confirm our bias. So can I tell you what I used to literally say? I would say when I was in the the throes of it, I am the common denominator. Mm. So I have to be the problem. Right. And you collected evidence, even in the back of your mind, you're yep. collecting evidence to prove 
look at, I'm the common denominator in all of these situations. Yep. And, uh, and I must be the problem. And you know what, just as a, I really want to say this because I think it's really important. That was a divine rescue. It was a divine repositioning. Mm. Right. And I love it in retrospect to be able to say like, God plucked me out of a situation yes. not meant for me. And yes. that was a rescue mission rescue mission, a rescue mission. Cause rescues are uncomfortable. I used to be a lifeguard. I'll tell you, I've got bonked and bloody nosed with the rescues on many occasions because people in the rescue is painful. The rescue is yeah. painful and we don't always understand what's happening or what's going on. It doesn't feel like a rescue at the time. I think about Joseph and he gets thrown in the pit and then he's sold to gypsies. And yet he's able to say to his brothers, what you meant as evil against me, God meant for good and the saving yeah. of many lives. Like we sometimes we know that God reaches in and plucks us out of things not meant for us, things that are maybe holding us back for our, the purpose that he has for us. Yeah. And so that's a shift in perspective, like letting ourselves collect material that is maybe different. He pulls us out of situations that aren't meant for us. And then we can collect maybe um, information to confirm that bias. What if we were to see ourselves through his lens? Yeah. So that's the shift in perspective. So what do people do who don't have the skills? Don't know where to start. Don't know where to start. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. The first starting place is deciding on a different narrative that just because this person says one thing doesn't mean that's the opinion of the masses. And it certainly isn't the opinion of God. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just like dove into the Psalms and I sat with David as he kind of like freaked out in his panic and anxiety and all the things were happening. People that betrayed. I know. He's such a mess. I'm so, I can't wait. (laughs) He's such a mess. He is such a mess. He says it as it is. Right. And he like, cries out to God. And then he's like, yeah, I'm going to just trust you because I know that you, you know, you shut the mouth of, you know, that you, you kill my enemies and you do the things. And I think, okay, so thanks David for spinning the perspective for us. Mm-hmm. So I think that one of the things that I would say is we should always just start with like, instead of running from it and trying to scamper and scurry and hustle to, to do anything outside the rejection is like, okay, reminding ourselves that one person's rejection doesn't indicative of, of all that's true. Yeah. Um, and also really notice the story that it's telling us. So we, we can stand away from that confirmation bias and start maybe collecting things that are true about us. If you have to interview your people closest to you, okay, this is I've the done story that. I'm telling myself. Is this, have you? Yeah. It helps, right? Like It just, helps so much. And it's, it requires humility. Yeah. And vulnerability. So much humility and vulnerability. But like, I mean, I shared this, it was three like best friends back to back, super painful and yeah. I was just like filleted open. Like I was just such a mess. Yeah. I had to go to my friends and be like, I need you to tell me why you love me. I need you to tell me why being friends with me is worth it. Because right now it doesn't feel like any of it is. It feels like you would be better off if we just, we just did this in now, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but then that gate, like these people were watching me bleed out mm-hmm. and it gave them a, a way to like help me. And, and love, love you. me. Yes. You know? Right. And so it not, not one of them were like, we're so full of yourself. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'll tell you why I love you. Like they were all like, Oh yes, yes. Let's talk about this. Yes. Because they had watched me walk through something really difficult and watch me be hurt and like, didn't know what to do. Yeah. And so on the other side of that, if you're watching somebody walk through a betrayal, whether it's marital or relational or whatever, like, don't even wait for them to ask. Yeah. Good point. Just tell them, like tell them. And I don't mean like, there's those like things online. That's like the best friend just agreeing with everything that somebody does. I don't mean that, but like, if you've watched your friend take a hit, tell them why you, why you think they're great or Mm -hmm. why the story that you can see unfolding isn't true. 
Right. And help be part of the counter story. Yeah. yeah. So good. One of the exercises I ask women to do in, in when they come into counseling and they're believing this narrative, this like self-deprecating narrative about themselves, I'm too much, I'm not enough, I'm, I'm unwanted, I'm unlovable, whatever it might be, is I ask them to, and sometimes I do this for them because they can't feel like they don't feel like they can, but write an email to your top five, top three, top 10, however many people you can, you can kind of pull out, pull out. Remember, not everybody gets the privilege of being close up. So it's okay to have a small circle of specials, right? And I think and it's better. It's better. Let's just have a few in there, right? Yeah. So email them. And here are the questions I ask women to email. The first question is, how would you describe me to someone who doesn't, doesn't know me? And the second one is, what is it that I bring to the table in this relationship that is of value here? And I just think it's such a blessing for people to get this yeah. influx of messages from the people that love them and want to be part of their healing journey, but don't, like you said, don't know necessarily how, but here's an opportunity for them. And so if, if you're going through that rejection, or you're going through that betrayal or feeling unchosen or feeling left behind or left out that courage to ask people to feed a counter story about you, Mm -hmm. because the rejection story is spinning thick and fast and vicious over here, asking people to fill this counter story is is a really bold, courageous thing, but it will help with your healing. It really will. And you're allowing them to reflect back to you what God sees in you. Yes, that's right. That's the kind of confirmation bias I want to have. Like, I want to know what God says about me and I want to be surrounded by people who will, yes, tell me when I'm like off the rails or I'm making bad choices, but more so will tell me like the ways they see his fruit in my life. Mm -hmm. So good. Because the whole world, whether you've been betrayed or not, the world is going to try to tell you a different story. Yes. You're so right. That you're never enough or you are too much or whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like normalize hyping up the people in your life. Yeah. Like, I don't mean like blowing hot air up them, but like normalize, like you killed that or you're so good at this, or this is what I see in you. I think the world would be better if we're all just doing that for each other. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, so your book is out and it's where people can get their, that wherever books are sold, Amazon and all of the places, where can people catch up with you online and stay in touch with you? NicoleLangman.com is my website. I'm actually running a boundaries course right now. One of the things I'm trying to do with boundaries is help people kind of um, learn to have boundaries with their own thinking, because that kind of speaks to what we talked about around like, you know, kind of buying into that rejection story or that, that narrative. So the boundaries around, you know, how to, how to interact with them, that's just available right on my website, which is colelangman.com. And then on Instagram, it's cole underscore Langman underscore official profile and a bit of a mouthful. And, uh, and there's links to my book on there as well. Nicole, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation such a privilege to spend time with you. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right, see you next week. Sweet. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.